If you want to really grow your online business, you're going to have to grow a team. As entrepreneurs, we're usually really good at solving problems, whether that's creating content, monetizing our sites, or figuring out SEO. Why then are online business owners typically so bad at hiring and managing staff? Today, I'm going to be interviewing Mads Singers to find out why this is such a problem and what steps to take to solve this. Mads is basically the guy in online marketing when it comes to management coaching. He's been doing this since forever, and he also runs his own business with over 100 staff, so he really does practice what he preaches. It's a long one, and we go really deep into some aspects of recruitment and people management. I've learned a lot from this, and I know you will too. Just an FYI, we did have some audio issues during the first 15 minutes, so we changed our recording setup. That's why the audio sounds a little bit different later on in the show. So without further ado, let's get stuck into this one. Just before we get started though, I also wanted to remind you that we have a sale going on our flagship product, the Authority Site System. It's available at a heavily, heavily discounted rate, and that discount expires tomorrow evening at midnight. So if you want to check that out, there's 120 videos in the course. It's brand new. We just finished recording it at the end of last year. It's fully updated. It's really, really good, and it's really big then I really encourage you to go to authorityhacker.com forward slash system and check that out now before the discount is gone. Welcome to the Authority Hacker Podcast, the place to learn field-tested, no BS tactics to growth hack your online business, and finally, live life on your own terms. Now, your host, Gael and Mark. Two years ago, I met Mads at a conference at DCBKK in uh, in Bangkok. There was a small group of us just chatting between a couple sessions. And he said something to one of the other people in that group. And that was that you should be spending at least 30 minutes per week with every employee in a one-on-one. And although it wasn't sort of aimed at me, something about that just kind of clicked. And actually not long after that, I started doing it. I had sort of been doing it a little bit previously, but not consistently and not with everyone. But once I made a commitment to do that, I really noticed a big difference in our business. And it's something I do right up until this day, every single Monday. Over the last couple of years since that conference, I've seen Mad's name pop up time and time again, either by friends who have been getting coaching from him or working with his outsourcing company by interviews on YouTube, on other podcasts, and speaking at pretty much every online marketing conference you can name these days. And he now even has his own management training course. So this guy's getting pretty big, and I'm glad to say we finally tracked him down and have got him on the Authority Hacker podcast. So welcome to the show, Mads. Thank you very much, Bonnie. Pleasure to be here. So for those people who have not heard of you, maybe they've been living under a rock for the last couple of years or something, can you just explain what it is you do and why people should listen to you. Sure. So my primary sort of business is my management coaching, where I basically help online business owners in really how to grow and scale their businesses. So a lot of people are great at their speciality and they're great at what they do, right? So if they're great at running Facebook ads, they're great at doing SEO or building authority sites or whatever. But a lot of online entrepreneurs are not particularly great when it comes to managing people. And if you want to grow and scale a business, that's probably one of the most critical skill sets in getting that right. So overall, That's what I do, right? So I really help people understand how to manage people effectively, how to hire the right people, how to be able to spot the right people, and how to be really be effective with different types of people. That's really what I like doing more than anything, right? Besides that, I also run a a couple other businesses. So I have a a VA company where I have a big office in the Philippines where we have hundreds of some VAs. And then I have an e-commerce business and I have a local SEO business, right? But uh, most of those businesses, again, is, is businesses I've started with people that have worked for me and done great. And I've basically found people at trust and I said, hey, let's start a business. You do the work, I put up the money and I, I give it lots of great advice and then let's go, right? So that's usually how I love starting businesses. And, and, and the thing is, when you understand management, when you understand people really well, then the fact of starting businesses become really easy, right? As a business owner, mm-hmm. 
the single most important thing you do is really hire the right people, right? And it's such a shame because so many people invest so little into the interview process. And it's really something that keeps hurting them and, and keeps getting back in their face again and again and again, right? That's pretty much what I do. My background was I worked corporate many years for big company like Xerox and IBM and, and large American companies. And that's sort of where I, I learned a lot of my management skills. But really the, the key for me besides that have been a, a ton of self-development. And now the last five, six years, lots and lots of coaching and uh I, I think I can pretty comfortably say I've never had a an unhappy coaching client. And that's, well, I think for a coach, that's pretty good to be able to say that. Yeah, why have you decided to focus specifically on online entrepreneurs? Because I know you used to do a lot of, did you used to work for IBM or something? You used to have a lot of like more corporate clients in that regard. Yep, correct. Yeah, so I used to work corporate and initially when i started coaching i did it with corporate guys right and i can be honest there's a lot more money in working with corporate clients than there's with private small businesses but it's a totally different experience like if you work with a couple of managers in coca-cola it's not like you'll see the stock prices go and explode right whereas when i work with a, a couple of managers in a small company or, or even entrepreneurs like business owners themselves like again you see things change, right? Like I have worked with people that have been stable at maybe 20 staff for a couple of years. And after me working with them for a few months, like they start scaling up and in a year's time, they go from 20 to 60 people. And a lot of entrepreneurs, a lot of companies hit some kind of ceiling. And for some people, it's five staff, for some it's 10, for some it's 20. But at some point, most people, if they haven't learned good management skill, they tend to hit this ceiling of what they're actually able to be able to to deal with and what they're able to do, right? Why do you think the entrepreneurs, specifically on, on online entrepreneurs, are so good at solving you know a general problem related to their business in terms of what they're focusing, what the mission of the company is, yet so bad at solving this hiring HR management problem? Well, it, it is, it's similar in, in big corporations, right? I mean, realistically, if you look in big corporations, what tend to happen is people get promoted because they're good at a job. So if I'm a sales guy and I'm great at sales, suddenly they need a new sales manager and I get promoted because I'm great at sales. Now, the thing is, me being great at sales alone doesn't make me a great sales manager, right? And where most companies fail big time is that they invest in the specific skills, like sales skills, but so few companies actually invest in developing the management skills. And when you develop, when you promote people into management roles, that skill is significantly more important than any of the other skills you, you, you develop in your company. Right. So that's where most companies really fail big time. Right. And specifically to online entrepreneurs, what are the, the challenges that you see people like us, which are faced, which are different to your typical. Yeah. Sorry, I say this specifically because I've read quite a few books now about management and HR and recruitment. And while there's definitely some really good books and resources out there, I find that to a certain extent, it's not really geared towards an online business, which has, you know, more of a location independent type setup, no offices and, you know, that kind of thing. So I just wonder what your thoughts on that were. Yeah. I mean, from a high level perspective, right? I think location independent businesses are different, right? For sure. And when you manage all your staff remotely, that does make a difference. However, from a high-level perspective, the management processes tend to generally be very much the same, right? They tend to be very, very similar, right? There is a natural management touch that you get when you're physically with people, like you automatically say good morning and you talk, you have a little bit of small talk with people that you don't necessarily have with remote staff, right? And that, that relationship that that builds is often missed out. But besides that, if I look at the sort of key challenges that most online entrepreneurs have, it tend to be definitely one, it tend to be around delegation, letting go, giving ownership 
to the staff they have. And again, it doesn't matter if that's virtual assistants in the Philippines or it's someone uh, living in the US or UK, but that tend to be the number one challenge for most online entrepreneurs, particularly the ones in the tech space or SEO space and that type of stuff, right? They are often very, very perfectionist and they often ruin their own businesses. They they slow the growth of the businesses down by always being the bottleneck and by not learning to let go, right? And one of the great examples I always ask people is, if you could have one authority website that build 100% the way you want and 100% spot on, or you could have 10 sites that are built 90 or 95%, obviously done through other people, what do you think is going to make you most money? right and most small entrepreneurs don't think like that right they focus very often on the wrong things the stuff that one doesn't necessarily make a lot of money or two like they focus on the perfection and things they focus on the let's get it right and and very often they end up spending time sitting doing like what i call ridiculous stuff right like they're manually sitting copying pasting stuff and like doing tasks that are just not worth an entrepreneur's time if you want to build a decent business at least I sort of observed there seems to be like a spectrum of people. There are those who, as you say, are just completely averse to handing over any kind of responsibility. And then there are those who that's kind of all they want to do is just hand everything away. Is there a need to find some kind of balance in between that? Or are you, in order to achieve high growth, do you think that people like everyone needs to push harder towards delegation more? Yeah, I mean, it, it depends a little bit, but in general, when you look at delegation from that angle, right, generally what, what tend to happen is the people who really struggle to delegate is often the very techy, very detail-oriented people, right? There is also the other end of the spectrum. So there's people who delegate ridiculously or delegate everything because they either don't like doing it themselves or they're not good at doing it that end up delegating perhaps let's call it too much, but it tend to be too much because not because they're delegating too much as such, but because they struggle at the fundamental management aspects of it, which is when you delegate stuff, you need to make sure you set clear deadlines, right? You need to make sure you follow up. If you just give someone a task and say, Hey, build me a website for, and don't tell them when it needs to be done and so on. And that's, that's key. So if someone's listening to this and is thinking to themselves, oh, that's me, I have, I'm terrible at delegating, I try and do everything myself, I need to do more of this, what should they do now? First of all, different people have sort of different challenges in terms of delegation, right? So most of them, when we're talking about the techie, very sort of perfectionist type people, uh, their challenge is often the letting go, right? And if that's you, if you're sitting in that, kind of position. Really, the key focus is, is thinking a simple question, as I said earlier, with the one side versus 10 sides, right? It's really about looking at if you keep going at speed of just you, it will take you a very long time to scale up and build a really big sustainable business, right? If you are able to bring in additional people, other people, you'll put yourself in a situation where you'll be able to scale and grow the business much faster, right? Now, it's very important to think about that and understand that before you jump into it, right? Because if you just think of it as, oh, I need to let it go, I'm not comfortable with that, you really have to learn to change that mindset, right? One of the key challenges for most people like that is they become very much micromanagers, right? Mm -hmm. And the thing is, it's often funny because they often learn what they know in a very different way themselves. They often learn because they were given responsibility by someone, they were given opportunity by someone to shine, and they took it. But the thing is, they're often not good at giving those opportunities to other people. And what tends to happen very much is when you don't delegate to your staff, what happens is they kind of fall further and further behind, right? If you make every decision for them, and most of these people do, right? What happens is every time someone have a question or they're not 100% sure, they always go and talk to the boss because they know the boss wants the last word. And that means the boss always ends up making decisions, which 
means effectively that because the boss makes all the decision, they are the ones growing, right? So a couple of key tips is one, stop answering questions from your staff when they ask. Ask them questions back instead, right? Can you give an example of that, maybe? That could be an example. So if you come to me and say, okay, Mass, I'm uh, building this site. I'm not sure what anchor text to pick. And instead of saying, oh, well, you should go with this anchor text and this anchor text and this anchor text, you could say something as simple as, what do you think? What would you suggest? And what you always want to do is you want to make them think. Because what they get used to is, Every time there's something they don't know, they go and ask you and you tell them what to do and they don't have to think about it. What you want to do is you want to make them think. So whenever people come and ask you questions or whenever they Skype you or whatever way you prefer to communicate, whenever they ask you questions, you always want to ask them, what do you think or what would you pick or what options do you see available? Because when you're developing a team, when you're developing your company, right, what you really want to do is you want to understand how does your people think. Because when you see how people think, you can understand if they're on the right track or if there's something they're completely missing or totally don't understand. If there's something they totally don't understand, you can help them understand the mindset behind it. If they at least use the right kind of thinking to get to the answer, then you know you're on the right track. Right. So very often the, the way human beings make decisions, right, is they take the knowledge they have and they then tend to either make a logical or an emotional decision. Right. So depending on the personality, they will either make a logical or emotional decision. So a logical decision with most sort of perfectionists tend to, to make is this makes sense because the data tells me to, or I should have X percent this kind of anger text and why percent this kind of anger text that's why i make the decision right and very often the problem is when you give people the answer they might know the answer to that question but they don't necessarily know how you got to that answer right and if they don't learn how to think if they don't learn how to come up with it it's never about the answer it's not about having the right answer it's about having the right thinking and getting to the answer right and that's really how you want to grow your staff right so you you really want to make sure when they come and ask you questions you really challenge them and you ask them come up with a suggestion like what options do you see give me the three options you see right and you get them to explain the options and say okay well that's three options which one do you think is the right one and why and then as they explain you can really easily understand does the person understand what's happening here or are they totally lost? So something that was really interesting, which I try and do, I'm not saying consistently good at it, but when people come to me asking questions, say, well, don't just come asking a question, come with a problem and propose two solutions and explain which one you would choose and why. And I found that to be quite effective in kind of teaching that thinking process. But one interesting question for you I have about this is, let's say someone realizes that this is something they need to, to work on more. Can anyone do it? Or do you have to have the right staff in place? Is it a case of, could there be some people out there who maybe have hired the wrong people and this is just not going to work for them? Or is this an approach that can work with anyone? Yeah, generally the approach can work with anyone because this will help you understand what they know and what they understand. Now, if someone have worked for you in link building for five years and you can see they don't know what link building is, then they're probably the wrong person in the wrong job, right? Like the understanding of their thinking will help you understand what they know and what they don't know. Now, just because you have staff doesn't always mean it's the right staff, right? If, and particularly in the beginning when people start hiring, that there's often some interesting hirings being made, right? Mm -hmm. But the fundamental key point, though, is when you start asking people questions, and I mean, the way you ask it is good. Sometimes I would say that there could be more than two options, but it's a great way of getting people to think, right? And fundamentally, you want to source out, like if people don't know and don't understand, that gives you an opportunity to help them understand not the answer, but understand them how you got to the answer, understand mm -hmm. the background, but again, if people come asking the same question again and again, don't, they don't learn the right thinking, then yeah, perhaps they are doing the wrong type of job.
it doesn't have to be the wrong person, but it could be the wrong job for that person, right? Yeah. I, I generally work with two kind of people when you're saying the wrong person. So there's the wrong person and the wrong company, aka they should not work here. That's the right person, but in the wrong job, right? Yeah. I think as, as entrepreneurs, though, it's also... There's a bit of a challenge if you haven't done this before mentally to think, well, if I let them go away and try and solve a problem themselves, they're maybe going to get it wrong. And that mistake may cost money that may affect the performance of my website or my company in some way. How do you get people over that kind of initial mental hurdle of uh, to the point where they can realize, okay, this actually has merit over the long term? Yeah. So the first aspect is thinking when you started yourself with doing SEO, you started from zero, right? You didn't know what it was before you started learning about it, Mm -hmm. right? When you started learning about it, you gradually became better and better and better. And if you moved from a scale from zero to let's say 80, right? Now, the thing is, because you have moved up that scale, because you've learned a lot of stuff, when you hire new stuff, you typically either have processes or training or you have something they teach them. So instead of starting at zero where you used to start, they might actually start at 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 or whatever, right? Um, Which means even though they start below the level you have now, they're still starting at a much better starting point than where you started when you first did your did the work you did, right? Everything else being equal, right? Now, again, this ties back to making sure you have good training and you have well-documented working processes, but that is the whole purpose of organizations, right? I mean, organizations exist for the specialization of labor, right? So it really means instead of training people that are just like you, like don't train someone who can do everything you can do because one, they will have no reason to do it for you. And two, it will take five years to train them up. Right? So instead what you want to do is you want to teach people to have and manage and, and fully understand certain aspects. Right? And that's the good thing about SEO. There's so many different areas. I mean, you can, you can hire someone and just get them to focus on link acquisition, for example. Mm-hmm. Right? And the thing is, they can get up to speed and understand link acquisition much faster. So from a link acquisition perspective, they might move from zero to 50 or zero to 80 much, much faster because there's only so much you can do with link acquisition, right? It's a much more limited area than if you look at at SEO building authority sites as a total, right? So as you hire people and as you bring them in, as long as you train them on less than yourself and really don't try and replicate yourself, right? But try and bring in people and, and teach them certain aspects of the processes. Like that could be on page or that could be how to publish content. I mean, if you have a huge website where you publish three pieces of content every day, you might one person just to make sure that runs smooth, right? And that sort of stuff, when you go and specialize, like people get up to speed a lot faster. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, when they become really good at one thing, you can then easier add more, right? So you can then easily say, okay, now you understand how to publish posts. Next, I want you to learn outreach or whatever. But the fact that they already have a certain knowledge about how to publish posts, that is then knowledge and skills that they can then utilize to make better decisions in other areas, right? I think one big thing takeaway really for me recently has been that as an entrepreneur, I used to think in terms of, okay, as you said, how can I find someone like me who can do everything? But just that acknowledgement that you're probably not going to do that because that type of person probably has their own business already. Instead, breaking the role down into five, 10, even 20 different roles, if, if that's what it takes in some companies, is okay. And I think the, the specialization part that you said there is the Definitely. uh. It's key for many reasons, Mark, right? One of the things that happens is people leave companies. And if you have spent five years training your own replacement that know everything you know, and then he, she leaves, then you're screwed. The whole point in specialization and organizations is the fact that because people, experts in a smaller area, it's easier to find a replacement who can become an expert in that area in a much shorter span of time. 
Mm-hmm. Whereas if you t- try to, to teach people a lot of things at once and, and try and get them up to speed with something, with, with a lot of stuff, it becomes much harder. Now, it will always be, well, it will generally, in most cases, be a bad thing when people who have been in an organization for a long time leaves. But the whole purpose of organizations and people having more specific tasks is that it also becomes much easier to replace them and people generally are more replaceable. Right. And, and as an entrepreneur, that's important because the faster you can train and hire replacements, that's both replacements from a we need someone to replace a person leaving. But that could also be for growth and scale. Right. So if you suddenly sit and say, hey, I'm making a ton of money, I want to double my organization. Let me go and hire 10 people tomorrow. Right. If you have the different pieces broken down, you can do that much faster and much easier. And your ability to scale is so much better than if you're always trying to clone yourself, right? Because it will take you 20 years to to bring up five people like yourself. Right. And do you think in terms of hiring that you should be promoting sort of from the ground up? Or do you tend to bring in kind of more senior managers externally? What's your approach there? Yeah, so I generally believe in the ground up. Now, there is exceptions. If you are a ridiculously fast-growing company, like some of the startups like Uber and some of those, like they grow so fast that they can't actually hire people fast enough. But I guess most people in the SEO business will not be in that type of niche, right? But in most cases, really what you want to do is you want to promote from within. And the way I tend to look at it is when you're building an organization, you start with a tiny pyramid, right? You hire a couple of people, you maybe have three people, and that's a pyramid. What you want to do is you want to grow that pyramid from the bottom, and you want to keep adding people in the bottom of that pyramid, right? What that means is that ideally, the f- some of the first people, I mean, the first five hires you do are so incredibly important because ideally they will grow with your company and they will become your core staff or your key managers and so on, right? Now, obviously that's better and easier if you've done some great hires initially. Right. But that's really how I believe in growing companies because for for a few very good reasons. Right. So first and foremost, when you hire from within, you know what you're getting. Now, sometimes people won't be great at the job. So if you promote someone to a manager, it doesn't necessarily mean they will be great at doing that. All right. However, you know what you're getting. One of the challenges from hiring from the outside, like let's you go and hire an operations manager. Right now, sometimes they can come with a ton of great knowledge and really up your organization. However, other times they might come with some great experience. They might very often have their way of doing things, which can be good and sometimes can be very expensive. Because if they have a way of doing things that maybe doesn't work for you or your company or your setup, and they end up being a total failure, If you have a total failure in an operations manager role, as an example, that is a lot more expensive than if you have a failure lower down your organization at an entry-level position, right? Because, I mean, sometimes a higher-level manager that fails can literally roll over your entire organization, right? And the key thing when you hire, when you recruit, the whole core aspect is really to avoid failure. Like, if I can hire someone who is great, I can hire someone who is either going to be amazing or going to be a total flop. Like I would always hire someone I believe will be great at doing the job because like failure, particularly the smaller the company, the more expensive failures can be. But you really want to make sure that you are hiring people that are good for the company. Right. And, and as I said, if it fails, you ideally want it to be as low in the organization as possible. And so it's kind of like a level of predictability then because you've exactly. worked with someone for X number of years, then you don't know for sure they're going to be an amazing manager, but you have probably a much better idea of whether they're going to work or not. Yeah. You know what you're going to get. And reality is when you recruit, like sometimes you do an interview with someone and you're like, that's going to be the most amazing person in the world. And then they start and two weeks later, they're like, why the hell did I hire that guy? Hmm. Right. And everyone have tried it. Right. So yeah. You, no matter how good you get at recruitment, sometimes you just have some of those what the hell happened there moments, <laughs> right? Now, the benefit of recruiting, uh, when, when you get good at it, I mean, you might be good, 
be getting good people eight out of 10 times or nine out of 10 times, but not every time. And that's the key. How does someone get good at recruitment then? Now, this is very simple. The more frequent you do things, the better you get at it, right? If you sat down and looked at your SEO for two hours every year, you probably wouldn't move very far, right? If you look at your SEO stuff every day of the year, you'll get very good. If you look at your recruitment processes and if you work on your recruitment skills every day of the year, you'll become better. If you do nothing about it and recruit one person every year, you will probably not grow a lot, mm-hmm. right? So one of the key things is as a business owner, you really do nothing more important than hiring people, right? There's nothing more important on your plate than hiring the right people. So you need to make sure you prioritize that. I definitely recommend any business owner I work with to generally improve their recruitment skills and and both in terms of interviewing and so on. That's a large part of my course as well, right? Because it is so critical. Like most people have tried to work with people that suck and they've tried to work with people who are great. And if you can build a company full of, primarily great people like your job of delivering just becomes so much easier yeah it's completely night and day i i mean i've heard all these statistics like one good hire is worth five bad hires or something but i'm pretty sure the number is like 20 or 30x based on my own experience anyway 100x (laughs) (laughs) how do you hire in your organizations i know you have a pretty big outsourcing company as well with 100 plus people was it what does your recruitment process look like in that, that company? Yeah, so, I mean, we, we are a large company, right? I have a full-time HR and I have a full-time recruitment manager. So basically for us, like, we are always hiring, as in we are always talking with people. Um, sometimes we have specific roles and sometimes they're a little bit more generic. But our goal is to talk with a lot of people because the more people we talk with, the more likely we are to meet amazing people. Right. And and sometimes you get on the phone or, or someone walks in to talk to you and you just know you have to hire them. Right. I mean, I've had about three three or four of those out of the hundred staff. Like uh, but again, the key thing is you're more likely to find them if you meet a lot of people. Right. So one of the key things is is a numbers game. Right. Second, from our recruitment generally, the focus is scale and volume. All right. So a lot of people, they're like, oh, now I got 20 applications. I'll hire the best one. And one of the absolute key failures is you're not looking to hire the best one. You want to hire someone who's awesome. And just because you get 20 applications doesn't mean there's someone awesome in them. Right. So, like, we rarely hire people without having had at least 100 applications to the job. Now, we don't speak with 100 people. But if we get 100 applications, we have a lot of things we can look at in terms of our common nominators that can tell us or at least have a fair chance of increasing our success rate, right? So, for example, what we do is we we always look at the people we have hired in the past, and we always look at the top performers and the bottom performers. So, for example, our top performers what do they have in common and how does that impact the job, right? And that could be random things like, oh, all our top performers have all gone to university. All our top performers all used to work in a certain company. All our top performers, uh, one of the things we have right now for, for VAs is nine out of our 10 top performers have all lived abroad, at some point, not for particularly long necessarily, but all of them have lived uh, abroad for at least three months, right? And that's something we have just found being incredibly valuable. And that makes it a huge difference in us understanding what to look for when we see a resume. Because when we know nine out of 10 of our top performers have lived abroad, that means when we look at resumes, if people have lived abroad, that's a big freaking plus, right? Mm-hmm. That's generally when we get a hundred applications, for example, and one of the criterias we look at is have they looked abroad? If they have, let's put them to the next stage of the process, right? And we also have negative areas we look at. So we look at our bottom performers and we see what do they have in common, right? What do they answer in interview questions? 
what do they have in common from the resume and the like? And one of the assumptions, wrong assumptions that I made when I first started my outsourcing business was that in the Philippines, there's a lot of, let's call it very boring jobs, right? So for example, sitting in a supermarket or helping people buy the right piece of clothes or something, where you basically stand up 10 hours a day. Mm-hmm. And my initial assumption was, hey, if they've had a ridiculously boring job for 10 years, they would love a great challenge. So we hired a bunch of people from the likes of local supermarkets. And what I pretty quickly realized was that was absolutely not the case. They had basically been indoctrinated into a culture where I show up on work, I go home, and what happens in between, I don't give a shit about, right? I just know I need to work my hours, and then I go home, and then I can relax, right? But that was one of the things we learned very, very quickly, that certain roles, if they've worked a certain amount of, a certain length of time in certain roles, like we had very, very low success rate with those type of people. And that basically helped us move out and say, when we get 100 applications, we can filter out even before talking with them, and we can probably get that number down to like 20 or something. Right. Yeah. And then we can start a much more intense interview process after I've, that. I've heard this before by a couple of very successful entrepreneurs. They basically say, look at it like a sales funnel. You know, you're, you're probably going to get a few people in there, but you need to have hundreds of people coming through the, the top to your sales page, or in this case, the application form, before you're going to find those superstars. So I think that's super important when you're, when you're hiring a lot of people especially if they haven't done a good job of this in the past and they, they haven't sort of built their team, they're an entrepreneur under pressure and they think, oh, I need to hire someone quickly. And as soon as you get to that point of almost desperation, that's when you start making bad hires. It's a vicious cycle. It makes it even worse in the long, it may solve the problem short term, but that person's not going to work out. So for me, like we probably spend as much money on our <laughs> internal recruitment email software than we do on our promotional one, right? But we literally, everyone that apply for a job with us go into our database and we have nearly 10,000 people on our email list now. And what we do is we, we split them into different segments and give them different sort of split them into different kind of roles and say, okay, this is a customer service potential and so on. And what we do is every time we have a new job opening, let's say we have a customer service role job opening. What we do is we email all the people who have applied in the past and we ask them two sensible things, which is one, are you interested? Or two, do you know anyone that would be, right? Because very often, a lot of people, even though they might've got a job somewhere else and aren't interested, they're very likely to know someone else that could be. So really use it in a very, very similar way to a sales funnel, right? What software do you use? So right now we use Active Campaign. Yeah, I mean, any email software works really. I mean, it doesn't need to be as segmented and so on as a sales funnel, I would say. But the whole, like, again, I've, I've met very few people that would do something like that. All right. But even like we have so many thank you mails from people saying, hey, I applied for a job eight months ago, but I got another job. I couldn't accept your offer. I've quit that job now. I'm so amazed you guys still remember me and, you know, that sort of stuff. And and sometimes we've gotten amazing people, like even people actively seeking us out, like really good people that says, hey, a while ago I had a job, but I can see how eager you guys are to talk to me. So I've actually left my previous job now and I would love to come in and do an interview, right? Uh, something like that. So. Nice. It, I mean, I, I look at the, the sales funnel for your for your recruitment in a very similar way as I would do as a as a, a sales funnel for for business. Once you've got people in, they've they've applied. How do you, in a time efficient way, filter through a hundred applications? At what point do you actually start talking to them, and what point do you sort of meet them face to face? What what does the rest of the process look like for you? Yeah, so we, we have a few more things. So depending on the roles and depending on how many applications, we also use a few scenarios such as testing. So for example, if it's a role where you need very well uh, written testing, for example, we would get them to get everyone to do a written English test to see the English writing skills. If it's something where you need really good oral skills, we would actually get them to record something 
Um, and, and often we do video. So for a lot of roles, we, we ask people to say, hey, can you go do a two-minute video? Tell us why you would be the right person for this job. And then upload it to YouTube in private mode and send us the link. Now, again, if you have 100 applications, probably 40 would potentially manage to do that, right? So either because they can't be bothered doing a video because they don't know how to do it and can't figure out how to look it up, in either case, they're not someone we would want to work with. So it's a good way to reduce that number. That's and, just, just sorry to interject. We, we also do that sometimes. And for a remote company where you don't have a central office, I find it's really good to sort of see people's work environment. Are they, do they have like a proper desk and is it neat and tidy? Are they organized? That kind of thing. So it actually reveals quite a lot about what that person's likely to be like. Yeah. Again, like our HR, she probably rules out about 20 to 40% of the videos just by watching them, right? Even though she's not really responsible for our recruitment, mm-hmm. we have a lot of basic things she looks for. Like, again, if people can't take two minutes and like, we had had a mom sitting in her car with two screaming kids in the back seat recording a two minute video. And again, respect for her doing it. But the thing is, if you take a job application serious, like you will make sure it's done well. Right. So there's a lot of simple things that will eliminate people that probably aren't so serious about it. And uh, yeah, that's, it's really good for most jobs. That's really good. If you're trying to hire a developer, that won't work, but Why? developers really don't like being on video. They really don't like being on video. The best developers are very shy, very like they love sitting behind their screen and so on, but they really don't like video. And the challenge you will have with hiring developers that way is the fact that you will get developers who aren't natural developers, which often means they are not so good at it. Right. I find with developers as well, it's the, there's a huge demand and actually not very much supply at the moment. So it seems as if it's kind of a lot of them, especially the good ones, almost have their pick of who to, who to work for, which company to even accept an interview from. So any kind of extra hurdles you put in their way can, can kind of cause problems there. I disagree a little bit. The thing is, most developers just like developing. Generally, they don't look at job boards very much. I mean, for most developers, honestly, it's not that much about money. But a lot of them just don't look at job boards very often. And one of the best ways to hire people and one of the best ways where we get a lot of our leads is actually from LinkedIn. Right, So we do a lot of proactive, similar to with the email funnel, like if we need to find, let's say, a a good developer who needs to, let's just pick PHP, right? So if we need to find a good PHP developer, like our HR will will sit and message a lot of PHP developer on LinkedIn and say, hey, we currently have this job opening for this amazing job. Would you happen to know anyone that would be interested? So we don't ask them specifically, would you be interested? But we ask them if they know anyone that would be. That gives us two things. One of them is a lot of people actually recommend great PHP colleagues. And two, some of them actually put up their own hand and say, hey, that actually looks interesting for me. But what we have found, a lot of developers really don't sit and look at job boards. If they have a job, they're generally happy and they don't think about a different job. But if you suddenly put another job in front of them, they are more, much more likely to consider it. Mm-hmm. So let's, let's jump back a sec to the actual interview process. Is there anything or do you have a specific set of questions which you always ask or yes. a specific format for it? And what does that look like and why have you designed it in that way? Yeah. So what we have is we, we have slightly different questions for different roles, but we, we tend to have eight questions that are the same. And we ask every single candidate those questions. The reason why we do that is goes back to figuring out, the, as I said earlier, with top and bottom performance, etc. We want to be able to compare data because we hire a large scale of staff. We want to be able to compare data and see what the successful candidates answer and what does not so successful candidates. So AKA, what is our top performers answering in an interview? And what is our bottom performers answering in an interview? Now, again, the actual questions are probably less important, but the ability to compare 
very often you'll see, oh, well, it's, it's random or whatever. But if you actually compare your top performers and the types of answers they give to questions, our experiences and, and my experience from large-scale uh, hiring an IBM and the likes is a lot of the time top performers tend to answer the same things and a lot of the time bottom performers tend to answer the same things, right? So anytime we see large correlations, we tend to put it in as a filter in our recruitment process um, because, again, like when you get in 100 applications, that could be someone great in between that you filter out. But, again, it's about increasing your odds, like if you have a pool of 10 candidates where 60% of them are great, that's better than having a pool of 10 candidates where 10% of them are great, right? So it's about increasing the odds of spending the time and talking with and interviewing the best possible people you can. For entrepreneurs who maybe have yet to hire anyone or only have a, a few members of staff, a smaller team, that's a great approach to to aim for, but they're not necessarily going to have that past data and they're not going to necessarily been doing it that way. What's your advice for that person for, hey, what this is what you should do in your next interview? Yeah. So what I advise in terms of questions, particularly in the beginning, asking specific behavioral questions can be really useful. So what, what that would mean is basically ask people for real scenarios. A lot of the time what people do is, if this situation happened, what would you do? And the thing is, what people will do in theory is not necessarily what they would do in practice. Mm -hmm. So, for example, if you ask someone like, do you like working in teams? And can you give me a specific example of a team where you work really well in and why? Right? Or like, do you like working with spreadsheets. Can you give me an example where you work with spreadsheets really well and achieved amazing results or something, right? So, but, but asking behavioral questions that forces the candidate to actually share an example of how they've done it. Because just because the theoretically say, I would do this thing this way, that doesn't actually mean that that's what they would do when the situation occurs, right? Mm -hmm. But generally, in most cases, past behavior can help you predict future behavior. And a lot of time, it's not about right or wrong, right? It's not every question, like most questions, it's not a right question or a wrong question, but it's a question of, do they fit your organization? Do that behavior fit that specific job role, mm -hmm. right? Like, for example, if you have someone sitting doing tweaking on-page SEO, it might be very important that they're very detail-oriented. If that's the case, and you get someone who's like, oh, yeah, I'll just brush over it, and I, I'll just make sure I finish everything, but I don't really care how accurate it is, right? If you're getting someone like that coming in, you're like, well, that will not fit for that job. It might still be a great person. They might fit for another job you have, or they might not fit for a job you have right now. That's okay. But it will help you understand they might not be a good fit for exactly what you're looking for for this role, right? Right. So let's jump forward a little bit if we can. Once you've sort of brought people on board or you have an existing team and you want to start giving away actual responsibilities, not tasks, not, hey, go execute this SOP, but you want to say to someone, hey, you're now responsible for outreach or customer support or, or, or something. Gail and I are terrible at doing this, so I'm looking to, for some tips from you here. How can we change our approach to that? How can we get better at actually giving that away? Yeah, number one, I know. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, right. So, so the key aspect here really is that, and, and you, you nearly sounded like me when you said it, right? But basically, when you delegate stuff to people, right, it's really, really important that you don't, don't just say, oh, here's how you check our customer service email. Uh, can you go do it, right? Like, yeah, you, you can give tasks to people sometimes, but really, if you want people to buy in, if you want them to take real ownership, right, how you work those things are really, really, really important, right? Like you really want to be in a situation and, and that's how a lot of people have experienced themselves, right? Like be in a situation where you tell people and say, hey, listen, dude, I am a business owner. 
I don't want to spend time on my customer service email. I love you. I trust you. I know you're great, right? I want you to own and live our customer service. I want you to take responsibility for it, figure out how to do it. We have these processes. We have these guidelines. The key thing for me is they are what we're doing right now. That's not necessarily the right result forever. So I want you to help us build this customer service team better than we ever have, right? Now, I trust you. You can ask me questions. I'm happy to help you out and so on. But I want you to become the expert. I want you to be the person who makes us do better customer support than ever, Mm -hmm. right? Now, if you do it that way, and if you, like when, again, when the person come with questions, because they always will, you want to, again, understand their thinking, right? So we, we covered that in the beginning a little bit, right? But that's really so critical. And then what you want to do is really let them grow, right? Let them make some mistakes. Most mistakes won't mean a lot to your business, right? And sometimes it's the best way to learn right? It's how I learned. Like I've been giving a ton of responsibility in a lot of different jobs by people who looked at me and said, well, I I look like, well, I don't know. I expect they looked at me and said, I look like a sensible guy and I tend to do what I say I'm going to do. And again, when you give people responsibility like that, right? Like that's the difference between someone saying, oh, now it's 5.0 one, I have to go home, that person saying, oh, there's still three more emails in the mailbox, I will finish them first, right? Mm -hmm. That's the difference between doing task and having real ownership. I think it can be quite scary as an entrepreneur, in a sense, giving up control. But one thing, you might have even said this before, I, I can't remember, but one thing which kind of like changed my mindset a little bit on that is that you probably like you you are talking about me as an entrepreneur let's say back when i was doing customer support i would maybe do it for i don't know an hour or half an hour a day depending on how busy it was i didn't enjoy it i didn't like doing it i wasn't particularly pushing hard to improve it beyond kind of the satisfactory level that that it was but it was kind of documented and kind of set up nicely when the person who I delegated that to came on board, they kind of had a sort of okay setup to to work with, but it was a much bigger proportion of their day and their time and their just their mind really that they had to dedicate to it. So because and because they were doing that, they're able to come up with new ideas and new suggestions, not not immediately, but in a very short space of time that meant that that we could actually get a lot better at customer service than we ever could if I was doing it myself. Yeah, and and that was probably me saying that. And the, the, the fundamental example I always use is just because something is boring to you, like a lot of people have like, oh, but this is a boring task. I don't want to delegate that because I don't want to bore people. But the thing is to most people, what's boring to you as a business owner is exciting as hell because they've never done it, mm-hmm. right? And again, what's your lowest priority? Like, for example, customer service, if that's in your lowest priority, oh, it'd have to be done, but I hate doing it kind of job. Like, if you give that to an employee, if you delegate that down, that really becomes the most important, right? Because that's really part of your job you're giving to them. So it becomes really, really critical to them. And again, the way you handle your most important work, right, the the focus Mm -hmm. you get, on that, the better, like you get a lot better output on that than you'd get on your bottom priority work, right? And when you move stuff from your bottom priority to an employee's top priority, again, they're much more likely to excel at, I mean, get much better than, than you were within a short span of time. Yeah, that's a really good way of putting it, actually. Uh, do you have any tips to when you're doing this to sort of maintain or get the most out of an employee in terms of? delivering on quality. One fear I often have is that, oh, if I give it to someone else, it's not going to be as good. Yeah. What I always try and recommend is look at numbers, right? So for most things, not everything, but for most things, so like customer service, for example, what I would normally say to people is we have two metric. We have a metric that says we should answer within X amount of time. And we have a metric saying we have to have a certain quality to it. Right. So for a lot of customer service tools, you can get like a customer service survey sent out to people who have had a a reply from you. Right. Mm -hmm. And 
you want to do is you want to manage that person by those numbers. You don't want to be telling them, oh, you should look at this process. You should do this different or try and do that different. You don't want to do that. You want to manage by the numbers by saying, oh, man, I know you've taken all this responsibility. It looks like we're answering the mails really fast. That's great. However, our customers say they're not as happy anymore. I want you to go and figure out how we can make that better. Right? right. So rather than you taking the initiative and ownership and saying, this is what we should do, you want them to feel the ownership and come up with the plan and execute the plan and hopefully make those numbers better. I think that's super important, actually. If you're not measuring that in the first place, that's probably an indication that you haven't been doing it right yourself. I know I'm guilty of that with uh, with back with customer service. So yeah, that's a good approach there. Can you tell me what the biggest mistake you've made in the in the last year with either hiring or or people management has been? I haven't made as many. I, if I can go back a, about a couple of years, I uh-huh. I made a, a horrible partner decision at one point. But I'm trying to think of any particularly bad hiring decisions. So honestly, I I don't hire majority of my staff anymore because we have a recruitment manager. <laughs> So I've only hired a couple of people uh, sort of the last year and they have all worked out really well. But I, I would say like for me, the definitely uh, one thing I did, I've done it twice actually, is go back to a wrong person. So I've had ones where I hired someone and things didn't work out for they become sort of didn't show up on time and you know they, mm-hmm. they showed the wrong behavior. And I ended up, like they went away and they actually came back six months later and said, Hey, I had some personal trouble, but everything is sorted. I'd love to work again. Is it possible? And a couple of times I've given people the chance to do that. And that have definitely failed on me twice. So that's something I've stopped doing. So again, learning by the numbers, but trust your gut. You would say that sometimes actually in both of these examples, it was really good people. But the thing was, they both had an issue within three months of employment. Like if someone works for you for three years and suddenly they have an issue, that's different. But mm-hmm. these guys both had an issue. Uh, it was one girl and one guy. They both had an issue sort of within the first three months. And that should kind of make some alarm rings, bell rings. And I didn't handle that the, the right way, I think. so. Mm-hmm. What are your favorite books or resources, not including your own course, of course, which is excellent and everyone should go and buy, but what are your favorite books on management that you'd uh, recommend? My absolute favorite, and I love the title as much as I love the book, but it's called First Break All the Rules. Yep. And that is an exceptional book because it really helps explain how different people can be very good managers. A lot of people tell me like, oh, I'm not a good manager. I'll never be a good manager. And that is never the case. You can choose to not develop that skill set, but anyone can learn to become a good manager, right? The reason why most people aren't is like, recruitment, they never do it and they never focus on it, right? Just like SEO, if you don't sit down and spend a bunch of time learning and reading and understanding, like you won't just naturally be good at it. Mm -hmm. You won't just build a website and put up content and suddenly have great SEO, right? It takes time and effort and management is the same thing. Now, in general, if you want to build a, a great successful company, investing in management makes a lot of sense, right? For sure. I also read a book recently called uh, Who, I think it's called. Um, Also an excellent book. I forget the author. And that fundamentally changed the way we approached our recruitment process. Uh, I was telling a lot of people at Chiang Mai SEO about that book. It's quite hard to find on if you just Google search it because of its short name. But yeah, we'll put that in the show notes or something. Yeah. What does your management schedule look like? So Maybe if we can go back a couple of years to when you were more actively managing a, a team of people, let's say you had five, 10 people reporting to you. Yeah. What is your meeting schedule on a weekly, monthly, quarterly, whatever basis look like? And what are you doing in each of those meetings? Yeah, I can tell you the, I mean, for, for my teams in general, it looks very much the same. So every manager have a team meeting with their team. 
right? So like even now I have a meeting every single week with my team and that's my team of managers, right? That team meeting is depending on how many people report to you and depending on what needs to be discussed, et cetera, is usually between 30 and 60 minutes. Let me just go to the meetings first, right? The second meeting are meetings that I always have is a 30-minute one-to-one with every employee every week, right? So that's basically every employee that reports to me. So obviously not everyone in the company, but everyone that reports to me. So if I have 10 people reporting to me, I will do 10 times 30-minute one-to-one every single week, right? Those meetings are the, the sort of fundamental management meetings. Now, then you can obviously have meetings on different specific topics and stuff or on projects, but from a management standpoint, that is the meetings that every single one of my managers have, right? Now, the, the format for those meetings is pretty simple. The one-to-ones is 30 minutes. It's 10, 10, 10. So 10 minutes for the employee to talk, 10 minutes for you to talk, and 10 minutes for, to talk about the employee's future and what they need to develop, right? The key objective of the one-to-one is very simple. Build better relationship with your friends, uh, with your employees, right? Sorry, I was meant to say, it doesn't mean you have to be friends, but you have to have a good relationship with your employees. Yep. And a great example of, I always use the same thing, but if you have a, a friend calling you up and say, hey, I'm moving next weekend, can you come help me? Now, if you say yes or no, obviously it might depend if you have other plans, but besides that, it probably depends how good a friend it is. If it's a really, really good friend, you're probably likely to go. If it's not so good a friend, you're probably like, well, I'd rather do something else. Now, the thing is, with your employees, the better relationship you have with them, the more likely, the more willing they are to do what it takes, right? The more willing they are to step up and work an hour extra when it's needed or put in that extra effort to make things happen. So the better um, the better relationship you have with your staff, generally the better output you get. I think this is especially true for remote companies like ours who don't, you, you know, you don't have that water cooler chat in the middle of the day or anything. And uh, unless you take the time out of your day to actually like build relationships with people, then you can kind of get into this cycle where you're just kind of, uh, you know, transmitting orders or instructions or feedback. And it, it's very kind of like, robotic and you kind of miss that that human touch yeah the key thing where it's really critical is if the employee have problems because people would say oh but i asked my people on skype how they are every morning right yeah the thing is if someone is in the middle of divorce they're not going to write you back when you say how are you they're not going to write you back and say oh i'm getting divorced all right they're not like if you don't talk with these people as human beings, like that's not going to happen. And if people go through stuff like that, you want to freaking know it. Mm-hmm. I think when there's that level of trust as well, that they can kind of open up to you, then they're, there's, they're less likely in a way to worry about consequences of, of actions. Like we, we've had problems in the past where people were, afraid to try something new or to take a risk in case they kind of got punished for it. Um, so I, I really try very hard to kind of let people know that that's not the case. And, you know, taking risks and failing is, is a good thing and it can potentially lead to some, some good things. And it's quite a hard thing to do to kind of foster that culture in a sort of more mechanical slack type organization uh, unless you're taking the time out to actually talk to people and even like get to know them on a personal level like what they're up to at the weekend and stuff it's always always kind of interesting as well yep for sure i mean one of the things i always say is if if you don't know the name of your direct employees if you don't know the name of their children and their partner and the dog and their cat you probably don't have a, a strong enough relationship with them Mm-hmm. Right, like if someone calls in to you and say, "Oh, Peter has gone to the hospital," if you don't know if if that's their son or their husband or the cat, like you don't know them well enough. That's a that's a really good point. I'm just thinking through, like, do I know everyone in my company's uh, children's or partners or dogs, cats' names? And probably not. So maybe it, it, uh... it doesn't need to be everyone in your company, but everyone that reports to you. Sure, sure, sure. 
Okay, Mads, uh, we're going to have to start wrapping it up there. It's been, uh, it's been a long one, but really, really interesting. Um, my last question is, is there anything that I have not asked you, which I should have asked you? A lot, but <laughs> we should wrap it up. <laughs> no, uh, not, nothing in particular, just with, this, with the subjects we have, we've talked about. Okay, well, we'll have to have you back for part two at some point in the future then. Yep, that sounds good. Okay, so can you just wrap up quickly by sort of talking about your management course? Because I don't normally recommend other people's products. This is one which I bought myself on recommendation, and it's amazing. I really have gotten a lot from it. I know it's your first course, and you're kind of worried about that sort of stuff, but really, it's it really delivers, and I'm super happy. I think it's incredible value for, for, for the price point. So I would recommend, first of all, anyone to, to go out and buy it. Can you just tell us a little bit about what's in it and perhaps yeah. why other people should go and get it right now? Yeah, I mean, fundamentally for me, as I, as I said, one of the key things is if you want to build a great company, you really want to invest in yourself and learn some more management skills, right? And this is my fundamental. So what, what I used to do was I, I used to do the content of this course with every single coaching client I got on board, right? Mm-hmm. And obviously it took a fair chunk of time to, to go through it with, with people and they would pay a lot of money, which is why I ended up putting it into a course first. So now everyone that ever gets coaching with me will have gone through the, the course first, right? That, that's basically how I operate now. So generally the, the core aspect of it is really to upgrade your management skill and, and to help you upgrade the management skill of your staff right? You really want to make sure that when you promote people, that you give them not just a new title, but that you show them, I'm investing in you. Like, I trust you. I know you'll be a great manager. I want to help you get the tools because just because you worked for me and been building links doesn't necessarily mean you become a, a great manager, right? So I want to take the time and, and the company resource to, to actually invest in some other stuff. So that's one thing. Um, second of all, like within my course, I, I have a lot of stuff on behavior as well. And that is also critical, not just in management, but in, in life, in business, in your personal relationship in sales that will help you significantly right so i spend a lot of time on the disc model and it's it's one of those things that in my personal life have made the biggest difference ever i mean it's it's the reason why i got promoted about six or seven times in ibm within five years mm-hmm. simply from this tool right and and from what you can do when you understand how people operate and so on right and uh yeah that's all part of the course so that's uh yeah, that's it. What I would add to that as well is I, I really like the fact that you work in kind of deep in online marketing. You know what SEO is. You understand our types of businesses. So like a lot of the examples you use in that course are more relatable. I find that with more mainstream products, books and resources, they tend to talk more about the Fortune 500 boardroom, which in many cases is a little bit hard to relate on a practical level. So I'll just add that in there as well. Good point. Yeah. Madsingers.com is the URL, I believe. Yeah. Is that correct? That's the, the main website. My course is on the, on the menu called Management Academy. Yeah, that's Mads, M-A-D-S, Singers, S-I-N-G-E-R-S.com. Okay, we'll put that in the show notes as well. All right, Mads, thanks very much for coming on the show today. Really appreciate your time. Love talking to you. It was a pleasure. And we'll wrap up there. So if you enjoyed this show, then don't forget to leave a rating on iTunes. That really helps promote it. And uh, yeah, we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to the Authority Hacker Podcast. If you enjoyed this show, don't forget to rate us on iTunes and send us a screenshot on authorityhacker.com slash bonus to claim your free premium Authority Hacker training.